Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. And welcome to Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy Madrid Sikich. If you are a fan of the podcast, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And remember, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. Today we kick off season three of Follow the Leader, and I absolutely can't wait to share all the awesome stuff in this season ahead with you. Today's episode is a tad different than the norm. So, let me take you back, way back to 2020. I had just started my Leader Nerd Instagram account and a person by the name of Chelsea Davis started following me. She told me she was writing a musical about a famous leader singer from the 20th century named Marian Anderson. She had all sorts of questions for me regarding repertoire and I was thrilled to have met someone just out in the wild who had real and actual questions about leader. But I was also totally astonished to learn of an acclaimed American leader singer who I had never even heard of. Fast forward a few years, and I've been following along with Chelsea's journey of writing this musical about Marian Anderson, and thought that it would be so cool to have her on the podcast to share about Marian's life and about her process writing the musical itself. I mean, come on kids, could there be a more perfect topic for this podcast? I don't think so. So Chelsea invited her co-writer, Victoria Theodore, to join us for the conversation. In the following interview, you'll hear all about Marian Anderson with some additional clarifying information from myself along the way. And to top it all off, Chelsea and Victoria will share some music from the musical. And just a little note about that. The musical is still in the process of being written and refined. And I am so excited for you guys to hear a bit about what that process is like. So we are actually going to hear a few demos and even hear an excerpt of something that didn't make it into the present iteration of the show. Before we head to the interview, let me read you an excerpt from the musical website, marianmusical.com. 
Marion is an original musical based on the life of world-renowned contralto Marion Anderson. After struggling against societal forces to fulfill her dream of becoming a world-class singer, she reaches her greatest potential as an artist, only to risk everything during the 1930s pre-civil rights movement. This is her story. Before Lady Day, before Tina, there was Marion. recording. <laughs> so Chelsea Marie Davis and Victoria Theodore, thank you so much for joining us today on Follow the Leader. So happy to have you here. It's our pleasure. We're so happy to be here with you. We're really excited. I'm a, I'm an early fan. I really truly think Chelsea that you are one of the first people that I like really heavily interacted with uh, on my Instagram, on my Leader Nerd Instagram and uh-huh. you know talked about the podcast with. So um, it's really exciting to have you on and to talk about your work. So um, before we get into it, um, why don't you guys each take a turn and introduce yourselves and tell us about yourself. Okay, I'll jump in. I'm Victoria Theodore. I am from the Bay Area, Oakland, California. I was born in Berkeley, raised in Oakland. So West Side Bay Area to the core. Um, <laughs> I now live in Los Angeles. I've let's see. I went. I played classical piano growing up, um, and leader is some of my favorite music on the planet. <laughs> um, so I went to Oberlin Conservatory and college as a double degree, triple major, triple, triple piano performance, computer music, and music history. Wow, and I. Um, if I had stayed another semester, I could have done a computer science degree too, but I had to leave because it's too cold <laughs> in Ohio. <laughs> fair. That's, that's fair. Her nickname on our team is Genius. Well, so. <laughs> that. I, uh, you said triple. And I was like, wait a second. What? <laughs> Please tell me more. I, yeah. I barely made it through the one. Right. <laughs> <sighs> so then I went to Stanford for graduate school and, um, Piano performance was my major there too, but I also studied at Karma with John Chowning because I was really into um, coding. And then I worked at Apple as an engineer. Wow. Okay. I did not know any of this. (laughs) And then I moved to New York where I worked as a database designer and computer consultant for the fashion industry while at night running a CD duplication service and writing music when I could. And then I left New York, came back to California and was teaching and working as a local musician, doing literally all styles of music. My nickname at that time was a musical mercenary because they (laughs) called me whatever the gig was. I could handle the job. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I played church, theater, pop. R&B, jazz, et cetera. I always looked at it as being an actor. You know, no one Mm -hmm. would ever tell Meryl Streep or Denzel Washington Mm -hmm. or any of the major actors that they could only do one style. Right, right. You study study it, you take it in, you learn. I try to learn as much as the culture of each style as I can so that I can replicate it with authenticity. So then after that, I was hired to be the keyboard player and background singer for Stevie Wonder. And did that. That was a major leap. That same week, I played the um, Chichester Psalms by Bernstein and the um, Requiem. Which Requiem was it? 
Or foray, maybe? That's a really It was the one. foray. That's yeah, right. Yeah, it was yeah. the foray yeah. Requiem with the Oakland Symphonic Chorus. That same week, I booked Stevie Wonder. So talk about different worlds. Wow. <laughs> Toured with him for seven years. Then was on television, the Arsenio Hall show when it came back in 2013. And then Beyonce in 2016. Whoa, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, you know, I just like played for Beyonce. It's like, no, no, you know, deal. did the world tour, you know. <laughs> Stop it right now. <laughs> yeah. And then 2019, I met that magical angel right there. It was Chelsea Marie <laughs> Davis. And I joined the Marion team and have been having the time of my life ever since has actually wow. caused a major change for me so that I'm mm. seeing myself as a creative and not just support musician anymore. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also have my own band in spirits and we're coming out with our first album this year. Wow. But we're here to talk about Mary. Okay. Now I'm like really nervous. Cause I'm like, oh my God. Like I, <laughs> I know I was like, Oh wait, why did I go second? <laughs> I cannot follow that up at all. <laughs> Well, I think it really is so cool because um, you've had such this like wide variety, you know, and what you're doing with the Marion musical, you know, focusing on Marion Anderson, who, like, you know, saying this very classical style, but then being able to create this musical that, of course, the musical isn't written in that style, but it has those elements, right? Right. right. And that's exactly. so cool. Yeah. Okay, so thank you so much for introducing yourself. I am in absolute awe. Chelsea Marie Davis, uh, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about yourself? <laughs> uh, sure. I studied uh, theater and music growing up, and I got a degree in music therapy. Um, but after doing a six-month internship at uh, Scripps Hospital in San Diego, I realized this is not for me. Uh, it's a very intense experience to be around that much suffering. And I think mm. if you're an empathic person, it's, mm -hmm. it's like I didn't have a membrane to <laughs> like keep it out. Right. Um, so I started working as a teaching artist in Southern California. And in that process, um, you know, doing vocal music and percussion and all, all kinds of different music, um, I worked in a, an extremely diverse school district with K through six students. And I was always trying to bring in um, music that reflected the culture of my students. And so a second grade teacher put this children's book in my hand called When Marion Sang, mm. which is the Marian Anderson story told beautifully by Pam Munoz Ryan. And I just couldn't believe that I graduated with a degree in music from a great school. I went to Chapman um, without ever hearing her name. Okay. So I also had never heard of Marian Anderson before Chelsea mentioned her name to me. And we're going to go into much more detail about her life in a bit, but I want you to have some basic facts before we go any further. Marian Anderson was born in Philadelphia in 1897. She joined her church choir as a little girl, and it soon became apparent that she was a singer of extraordinary talent. After she sang for the famous conductor Toscanini, he said that hers was a voice that only comes around once every hundred years. She grew to become a contralto with an exceptional sound, and the variety in her voice was remarkable. She was widely known for being equally at home, performing profoundly moving renditions of spirituals, as she was in her exquisite interpretations of her lead repertoire. There's so much more that could be said, but for now, back to Chelsea and the book When Marion Sang. 
I started using it with my students and we would sing through the book or I would show them the video of the Lincoln Memorial and um, it sparked such incredible conversations around race and privilege with little kids. Um, and the one that will sort of forever be this like dagger in my heart was a little a little girl, probably seven years old. It was a second grade class. And I think she was Vietnamese American. And she raised her hand and said, but wait, why did all the white people get to make the rules? And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> you know? I'm like, yeah, that's not fair, is it? Everybody needs to have a say. Um, and I just left the classroom and bawled my eyes out because a kid can just cut right through all of the BS and... It was, yeah, so emotional. So I did that um, while simultaneously working as a jazz singer, doing uh, music from the American Songbook. Um, I taught lyric writing for Johnny Mercer. I released my own album in 2014 um, called Caged Bird. And two of the songs from that were used in a, a production of LA Theater Works, um, The Whipping Man by Matthew Lopez. And that was kind of my first experience of my music being used in a theatrical production. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is what I love. <laughs> um, and it's sort of, it already, the album already told a story. It had a beginning, middle, end. I was, I was always headed towards the, back to theater. I just didn't know it. And then one day, um, one of our other writers on Marion, there are five of us total, all women, um, spanning three generations, interracial. She had just lost a big project she'd been working on. And I went to her house and she had When Marion Sang on her desk. And I was like, why do you have this book? I use this with my students. She goes, they read this in my children's classroom 10 years ago. And I have wanted to make a musical out of her story. And I'm so heartbroken about this other project that fell through. But I decided I'm going to go back to my bookshelf of dreams. And I'm going to pull out my next dream. And Marian Anderson's story is the story that was the most compelling to her. And I was like, can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's how it started. That's it just started, started with the two of us going, how could we do this? What was her name? Her name is Elkin Antonu. Yeah, it started with the two of us. And we and we are both white. So full mm -hmm. disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, and we knew, like, first of all, we don't want to tell this story by ourselves. And right. we wanted we wanted to center Black voices and specifically Black women and partner and collaborate. One by one, we found um, three incredible women to um, help write lyrics, help write music, and help write the book. And we've been collaborating as this team for all five of us um, for several years now. So those five people on the Marion team that Chelsea just mentioned are Elkin Antonu, Emily Ruth Hazel, Colleen Sinette Jennings, and of course, Chelsea Marie Davis and Victoria Theodore, who are here with us today. When, when did you first have that aha moment together about the musical? What year was that? I want to say somewhere between 2015, 2016. Okay, got it. Yeah. And I met my co-lyricist, Emily Ruth Hazel, at a songwriting workshop in Santa Fe, she was in New York at the time and she mm -hmm. moved to Los Angeles. And I was like, I think that you're supposed to work on this project with me. Wow. And she was like, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. And I said, but I really think you are. <laughs> and so she came on. She was our first, um, uh, our first addition to the team. And, you know, we wrote the first song in 2017. Um, and then we found our book writer, Colleen, 
we had been working with another book writer um, who was great, but uh, we just felt like, he, but he was male and we felt like we really wanted this story um, to be headed by a female voice and perspective. Um, and it, and it is different, you know, and it's, it's not good or bad or whatever. It's just different. Right. Right. Um, and so we found Colleen Sinette Jennings, our book writer. Um, and then luckiest day of my life meeting Victoria Theodore. <laughs> How did you two meet? We met through an organization called Maestra, which supports women who work in musical theater, either as MDs, music directors, composers, lyricists, you know, rehearsal musicians or whatever. They're based in New York. And I had gone away and written, um, like sketched out the first 14 or 15 song ideas so melody, I'm a singer primarily. So I work, I write with my voice. Um, and so I was sketching out, you know, melody and doing deep dive research on her repertoire, um, at this music library up in Maine. Anyway, it was, and contacting you and asking you all kinds of questions right. about leader. <laughs> like, Tell me what I need to know. Um, and so I knew that I wanted, first of all, I always wanted somebody else to collaborate with. I love collaborating. Um, and I was looking for someone who was a fabulous, genius, brilliant pianist, because that is not my strength as a writer. And we were given three names by Maestra, and um, Victoria was in LA. And from the moment we met, it was just like, Instant. oh, this is this is going to be the thing. This is what right. we're doing. <laughs> like, she's my person. Um, and it's it has been magic. Uh, it's been magic to work together. Wow, that is so incredible. So maybe we could pivot and speak a little bit about Marion. So um, her story, I found myself, and I mentioned this to you both um, the other day, that I found myself as I would listen to her recordings or watch you know, some of her videos of the Lincoln Memorial concert, of just various um, performances throughout her life. Uh, even I saw, I don't know, have you guys watched the What's My Line when she makes the appearance on What's My Line? Where she basically doesn't use any words. Right. She just says uh -huh. no because they're asking questions the whole time. She's she's this <laughs> guest and right. And um, the the contestants are all blindfolded and they have to guess who the mystery guest is and they cannot figure out who she is or what she does. They couldn't even figure out what she, what she did. Uh -huh. um, but at the time, she was this wildly famous singer and literally that day an article had just come out about her. I don't remember if it was the New York Times or the New York Post. It was the New York Times. Anyway, the absolute reverence that the audience felt and the contestants had and um, the host of the game show had, I felt myself being moved to tears, not only then, but s at so many points throughout um, my research of her. And there's, I can't remember whose little excerpt it was, but it was a description of the Lincoln Memorial concert mm. and someone describing how they saw a little girl in the front row, a little black girl in the front row, like looking up at Marion as she was singing. And I, I, I had to close the book and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because to see yourself represented in someone who's doing this incredible thing, it's a, it's a very, very powerful experience extremely yeah. powerful. And um, yeah, and that's why I'm, I'm so excited to, to talk about her today and and would love for you guys to share um, 
share what you can about her life. What do you think are the important parts for us to know about Marian Anderson's life? Well, Marian Anderson grew up in Philadelphia. She was born in 1897. And she grew up in sort of South Philadelphia in this neighborhood that was infused with a lot of immigrants. So, um, you know, there were sort of poor Irish and poor Italian immigrants coming in all the time. Um, at that moment in uh, the U.S. history, Philadelphia was like the third largest port for immigration. So tons of like Russian Jews and just people from Eastern Europe were coming through. So she grew up in an integrated neighborhood, which I think is important to mention because that is perhaps part of why she had... Um, you know, such strong opinions that were uh, unvoiced about sort of music belonging to everyone mm-hmm. um, and why she maybe felt comfortable moving between worlds. Um, so I always thought that was really interesting. Um, she had incredible support both from her family and from Union Baptist Church, which we got to visit um, on a on a research no trip to Philly. We didn't get to go inside because it wasn't a Sunday, but we, you know, we got to go see it. And it's right across the street from 762 Martin Street, which is wow. now the Marion Anderson Museum. Or Marion Anderson Historical Society is based there. Um yeah. And so they were incredibly um supportive. And they also had a very rigorous music program. One of the stereotypes about music in black churches is that it's gospel or was largely gospel. And I'm sure in, you know, geographical regions, the percentage of that would change. But in Marion's particular case, um, they had choirs for every age group and you had to learn how to read music and you had to like basically prove that you were a good enough singer to move up to the next group. So she had excellent training as a very young child from these choir directors at her church that loved music. Um, And they were doing Rossini and they were doing a lot of um, Mendelssohn's Elijah, like a lot of classical pieces as part of their repertoire, in addition to um, classical renditions of spirituals. Um, So her uh, background in terms of what she heard, that was, that was in her bones. Um, That was in her blood from a very young age. Um, She had a very tragic experience um, around age 12 where her father died in an accident. And she was really close to her dad. I think he had bought her a violin when she was young and got her a piano. And he was, you know, just sort of her biggest fan. To lose him sort of on the cusp of adolescence, I'm sure was absolutely devastating. But it also thrust their family into poverty. So all of a sudden their household, which had, you know, she and her two younger sisters, mom and dad had to move in with grandma and grandpa and multiple cousins and aunt Mary, and they had boarders coming in and out. And if you read through the biography, they were moving a lot around South Philadelphia. So there was a sense of, I think, instability and a, and a, you know, a desire for home that wasn't met until she was able to make enough money to buy her own house. Now, this is a good time to jump in and say a few more things about Marion and her upbringing. When she was young, unfortunately, paying for lessons or any kind of music school was not within the family budget, so she did the best she could learning from anyone who might have something to teach her. She began singing for various functions as a young girl and was often paid a very small fee. These opportunities eventually led to more opportunities, and before she knew it, Marion had her sights set on a career as a professional singer. 
Her mother and sisters were extremely important to her, and she used whatever money she could earn from singing to help support them. But she also knew that it was necessary to find and pay a teacher that would truly help her reach the potential she believed she held within herself. Marian eventually began studying with a teacher named Giuseppe Boghetti, and it was under his tutelage that she truly began to believe in her destiny as a professional singer. She experienced a low point, however, after she gave her debut recital at the Town Hall in New York City. The recital was poorly attended, the hall was only one-third full, and she did not receive good reviews. It was a theme during this time of her life that many people commented on how much she still had to learn. Listen to this quote from the critic Herman de Vries. Anderson reached near perfection in every requirement of vocal art. The tone was of superb timbre, the phrasing of utmost refinement, the style pure, discreet, musicianly. But after this, there was a letdown, and we took away the impression of a talent still unripe. Here's another one from the publication The Public Ledger. It is too much to say that Miss Anderson is as yet a great artist. There is much that she still has to learn in the intellectual and dramatic values of singing but it is not too much to say that she has one of the most superb contralto voices heard in Philadelphia for a very long time. Ironically, the thing that she ultimately came to have such affinity for, German leader, was often the thing that elicited the harshest judgment from her critics. So it was clear to Marian that she had to take her training to the next level, and that meant going to study in Europe. She went to London for a time before securing a fellowship from the Rosenwald Fund, eventually convincing them to allow her to use it for study in Berlin. In Europe, Marion was an absolute hit, something we'll get into a little bit more later on. This is truly remarkable, as many of the European audiences were reserved in their feelings towards American singers. She became friends with Roger Quilter and Jean Sibelius. She met and began working with her long-term pianist, Kosti Vianen. She worked on her German, and she studied with various teachers, never tiring of her pursuit of excellence in all that she did. Marion was determined and single-minded in pursuing her career. She knew from a young age that all else would be secondary to her pursuit of success as a performing artist. She set aside a romantic partnership because she knew that she must first and foremost establish herself, and then romance and possibly family life could come later. That seems exceptional to me at a time when it was not easy for women to prioritize their own careers. Okay, back to Victoria. Another thing about Marion that struck me growing up was how she was a ceiling breaker, that she really gave artists for generations after her the blueprint for how to thrive as an artist in the classical world, being a Black person, being a Black woman in particular. And like you just said, having representation is so important. It's just vital because as a young person seeing her, you know, whether it's the people who came right behind her, Leontine Price, um, Denise Graves, um, Jesse Norman, Jesse Norman, um, Kathleen Battle, just, you know, a litany of people having that as an example allowed all of them to dream it, to be able to conceive of it 
and including myself so that I could, you know, I, I saw Andre Watts when I was 12 years old and knew that I wanted to be a classical pianist at 12. So Marion is one of those people that really just laid the foundation for classical black artists to be able to step into the world fearlessly. And I think something that's so remarkable about that is that at the time that her career was blossoming, there really were so many obstacles to her. Oh, yeah. So for instance, like when she would go to cities to perform, a lot of times she couldn't find a hotel. There was literally right. not a hotel that would put her up. Yeah. Or if she was um, singing with a white pianist, right, there was that huge issue of them being an integrated duo. Her, her very first accompanist um, was William King, who was a young black man, very talented in Philadelphia. And they really became a duo. Um, I actually love the story of how they met. And I'm going to get into the difficulties because they, you know, started touring down South. But she was singing at the YWCA because um, every Sunday she would just kind of go around and she'd earn a dollar here or 50 cents there, you know, doing these concerts all around Philadelphia. She was incredibly well known as a young person, as a teenager, um, young 20 something. And she was singing at the YWCA attempting to accompany herself. And she was self-reportedly an abysmal pianist. <laughs> and he happened to be there and slid over to the piano and slid onto the bench and just said, may I? And she stood up and then he just went for it. And oh, they, my God. I know. Awesome? <laughs> it, was like, it was totally magical. <laughs> like, um, And they, he really ended up putting together um, her first tour and her first tours around Southern United States, going to um, historically black colleges and universities, um, to black churches. He was sort of booking agent, manager, accompanist. He handled all the details and she really, really got stressed out by that kind of, those kinds of de details. Um, at one point he got really frustrated because he found something like 50 unopened, unanswered requests that had come to her. And he was like, what? Like, what are you doing? But she just would get overwhelmed. She just wanted to sing. She just wanted to sing. Um, and it was, it was incredibly difficult when they would travel down South. You know, they, they couldn't stay in a hotel and they would have, she would have these very um, disorienting experiences. And I think more so because she grew up in Philadelphia, which is certainly had lots of personal and structural racism, but it looked different. So when she was in the South, you know, she might have an incredible concert for white a white audience because they would do two concerts a night, um, one for black, one for a white audience, and be just praised to the nines, you know. Um, and then she'd go across the street, and the hotel would bar her from entering. So all of these extremely um, disorienting, sort of fracturing experiences. What strikes me as interesting about Marion is that she actually chose to minimize those things. So if you read her autobiography, My Lord, What a Morning, first of all, she speaks in third person. Who does that? Right. When one feels this, one must... I'm like, one who? Who is speaking? Um, she, I did notice that in some of her letters, she would, she would also speak that way too. Even a letter to her husband, um, I start saying one feels... Oh. Yeah, very, very formal. I mean, her mother was uh, had been a teacher in Virginia, um, 
during the sort of reconstruction. So I'm sure it was drilled in, you know, we, we speak a certain way, you know, Mm -hmm. our grammar is perfect. If you look at her letters, her penmanship is beautiful, Mm -hmm. but she was very formal and she truly focused on the music and only the music. Um, she worked really hard, I think probably emotionally to tamp down all of those other experiences. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't speak about them very often. I think she was actually so sensitive that if she did focus on it, it it would disrupt her ability to perform. One of the things she is most famous for is the Lincoln Memorial Concert, right? And she did not even want to include that in her autobiography. The Lincoln Memorial Concert was a concert arranged for Easter Sunday, 1939, after Marian Anderson was denied the right to perform at Constitution Hall by the Daughters of the American Revolution because of her race. Those around Marian took it upon themselves to arrange another venue for her to sing in, and eventually the idea to hold an open-air concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial took form. The concert was expected to attract one of the largest groups of people since Charles Lindbergh's return from Paris. Truth be told, Marian did not want to be the symbol that those around her were making her out to be. The controversy over not being able to use Constitution Hall made her feel ashamed. The night before the Lincoln Memorial concert took place, she even called her manager, Saul Hurok, and tried to cancel. At midnight, she called him and wondered if she really had to go through with it. In the end, however, Marion did what she did best. She bravely stepped out in front of the crowd and sang. The Parks Service reported that there were at least 75,000 people in the audience. What's more, the concert was broadcast nationwide on NBC's Blue Network to a radio audience of millions. Her program included America, the aria O Mio Fernando, Ave Maria by Schubert, and a group of spirituals. Walter White, the true architect of the concert, wrote about what happened after Marion finished her encore. As the last notes of Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen faded away, the spell was broken by the rush of the audience toward Miss Anderson, which almost threatened tragedy. Oscar Chapman plowed through the crowd and directed me to the microphone to plead with them not to create a panic. As I did so, but with indifferent success, a single figure caught my eye in the mass of people below, which seemed one of the most important and touching symbols of the occasion. It was a slender black girl dressed in Easter finery. Hers was not the face of one who had been the beneficiary of much education or opportunity. Her hands were particularly noticeable as she thrust them forward and upward, trying desperately, though she was some distance away from Miss Anderson, to touch the singer. They were hands that, despite their youth, had known only the dreary work of manual labor. Tears streamed down the girl's dark face. Her hat was askew, but in her eyes flamed hope bordering on ecstasy. If Marian Anderson could do it, the girl's eyes seemed to say, then I can too. Now back to Chelsea. You know, the Lincoln Memorial concert, it was put together by people that were not Marian. And they only had 10 days once they figured out that they could do the Lincoln Memorial. And she did not. She did not want to do it. She did not want that attention. She didn't want that burden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but ultimately she chose to do it. And 
we don't really know why she changed her mind. I would imagine it's because of just a sense of duty and a sense of righteousness and doing what's right to at least make an effort in that direction because she did, she was a religious woman and she, as a black woman, had experiences that outlined the need for making change. Yeah. She, uh, she actually tried to cancel the concert the night before. Yeah. She called her manager and said, I can't do it. And he was like, uh, (laughs) that's not a thing we can do. And she, writes in her autobiography of of this kind of come to Jesus moment in the middle of the night where she just felt like this sense of if you have anything to give now is the time. And first of all, it was absolutely a political space. It was not a concert space. And so she knew this is a political action. It's as much as, you know, she could just say, I'm going out there to sing. It, it was never that it was, it was a statement. Um, and it was a statement for civil rights. It was highly publicized. You know, it was on the radio. Two million people heard her over NBC radio. And from that moment on, that's the thing that people remembered her for. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if she had a hunch that it's like, once I cross this line, there's no going back. This thing that she worked so hard for, you know, to to develop her voice and her artistry, to learn several languages, to, you know, go to Europe, to fight and fight and fight to get training. All of her hard work was, was funneled towards making great art. Mm-hmm. And then because she made great art and because she didn't make a fuss, you know, she was a very dignified person. You know, she wasn't controversial. She was kind of the perfect person for them to use for that political statement. She ultimately did it. And it was, it's probably the reason that we're talking about her. It obviously is not the only accolade, the only achievement that the list goes on and on and on and on. But this kind of is the big one. It is. And it's funny because, um, so we are in connection, or we're, we are connected with Jeanette DePriest, who is Marion's late nephew, um, Jim, uh, Jimmy DePriest, James DePriest. He was a con- very famous conductor. Um, his wife, so she's the executor of Marion Anderson's estate. She's come to our readings and uh, allowed us to interview her. And she said, gosh, even later in her life, you know, into her 80s, people wanted to ask her about the Lincoln Memorial. And she would be kind of like, it's over. I did it. You know, <laughs> like, is we have so much else to talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she, I think, wanted to minimize it. Um, and at the same time, what a history shattering moment. You know, Truly. That she could do because of, because of her great art. And her willingness to serve her community. You know, I wanted to pivot there um, on, you know, the topic of art and how that really was singing and the art of singing and how deeply that that spoke to her and how deeply committed she was to it and particularly how leader, right? <laughs> this this um, song form that I am so obsessed with um, and that my listeners are, are so obsessed with, that particularly spoke to her. And I wondered if we might be able to chat a little bit about her great affinity for leader and her kind of journey going from someone who knew that they loved it, but maybe wasn't so awesome at it. And then the, the training that she did fight to receive to become this, this great lead interpreter. I actually asked that question myself at the beginning of this process of writing the musical. 
And I spoke with a friend of mine who's a classical singer, and she was the one who said, you know, it's really interesting that she gravitated towards leader because, you know, the style and even the language says something about who you are as an artist, who you are as a person. And her comment was, there is an interiority to leader that might have really resonated with her. And I thought, oh, that's exactly it. All the feelings are on the inside. You know, they're not bursting through these big dramatic cadences, you know, in, in the Italian or the the comedic. And, and it, it's also serious. It's far more serious. Um, and I think she was a serious person. I think her feelings were very, very deep, but also came out I won't say exclusively, but nearly exclusively in her in her singing. And there is a subtlety to leader performance that she seemed to really capture um, in her personhood and in that mysterious aura that she had. <laughs> yeah, you know, for for me, uh, what draws me to leader is n- not only the incredibly beautiful settings of the German poetry to exquisite melodies that are very singable and very memorable. Um, so I, I can see that being a huge appeal for Marion and also thinking about her audience, for the audience to be able to experience these songs that have such a direct emotional connection to the listener because they they tend to be pretty simple. The melodies are not generally all over the place. They're very singable for even a non-singer, right? And then the piano arrangements. They're often quite spare with a lot of space. The way that the piano voicings are leaves a lot of room for the voice, for time to experience the emotions as it's happening. Um, and I think leader is particularly special in that way. It's definitely some of my favorite music. And, uh, you know, I can imagine that Marion was drawn to it in a similar way. All of that being said, everything we've just said in the past 45 minutes, then how, <laughs> how do you create a musical like in our modern style or this, the styles, you know, that you've, cause there's a variety of them. I understand, right. Within yes. the musical, how, how was that process of capturing the quality of her voice? I mean, this incredible contralto who had such an incredible range and a wide variety in the different ways she could sound. Um, How do you put that in musical form? Can you guys kind of walk us through that process? And then maybe we'll also hear some examples (laughs) of that. For sure. The first thing I thought when I was brought onto the team was how do we exemplify the different aspects of Marion's life, right? Because she's a real person. She was a real person. So I wanted to have the music reflect different aspects of her life. So her internal voice, um, I was conceiving of traditional musical theater, her external voice, you know, talking to other people, um, to her peers, to her family would be more contemporary musical theater. So it has more of a groove to it, you know, maybe an R and B sort of tilt, (laughs) but not full on. Um, and then her performance voice is the classical and we composed the songs in a way so that there's a through line 
that makes it all feel connected. And one of those ways is we we utilize the device of the triplet throughout a lot of different songs to indicate Marion's anxiety. A la Errol Koenig. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> There's one song that I absolutely love that Chelsea came up with the concept of blending classical and jazz with Odon Fatale. And we start... There's a section of the song where you hear it in a traditional setting and then or the original setting. And then we have a jazzy setting. <laughs> it's so fun. And people seem to love it. Should we listen to that now? Of Marion Fever? Uh, yes. Sure. Do you want me to give you a little context? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So in real life and in our show, when Marion went over to Europe and she got some training, she learned German um, and she started performing. Uh, she went to Finland and the Finnish people just became obsessed with her. And it was like 12 concerts turns into a hundred concerts. Um, and the newspapers actually called it Marian fever, which the first time I read that, I was like song title. Um, this <laughs> is like, well, that just wrote itself. <laughs> so we have this really fun, you know, sort of big full company dance number, um, where, you know, all of the reporters from the various countries are singing about her and, and some of the language is taken from actual reviews that I painstakingly Google translated. Um, <laughs> and this particular section, yeah, she's, uh, this is a demo. So we recorded demos for, um, you know, for the show so that we could have something to play for the performers. Um, so they, as they learn the music, uh, and this is a little demo of Marian fever that starts with Odan Fatale. From England all the way to Azerbaijan She's a one-woman phenomenon She's a one-woman phenomenon Oh, Don Fatale Oh, Don Crudal Ti maledico Ti maledico Gelbeta Her voice is like a violoncello, dark in the depths, joyful yet mellow. Notes of a nightingale sings like a bird, the greatest art we've ever heard. Her voice is soft as violet, velvet, and once heard, you can never forget it. The color of her voice, her sonorous tones, elate us, captivate us. I just hear, I'm like, I can hear all the horns, you oh. know, mm, like, yeah, it's going to be so fun with a big band. Mm. So maybe uh, we should probably just back up real fast and say right now. So this musical is still in process of being written and having, um, what did you, how did you put it the other day? For, for your listeners who don't know, writing a musical is a long process Very. Um, that involves many iterations. <laughs> in 2022, we did two industry readings where we had producers and other people from New York come. 
Uh, one of those was at the Marian Anderson Theater in Harlem, which was amazing. Yeah. And uh, we got feedback from the audience and that is always very informative. It's like what's working, what's not, you know, what felt necessary to the story, what wasn't. Um, and so we are this year um, sort of turning our sights on the story and doing a deeper dive and an, a new look at it um, to figure out how we can make it even more compelling. Uh, and the goal from there will be to do a two-week workshop where we bring in a choreographer and we have, you know, the cast gets to work, they get to work with the director and and then there's a small presentation um, that we can bring regional theaters to who would then um, potentially want to produce the first developmental production. So we are, I'm, I've been in this for like a long time, <laughs> like seven years. So I'm like, it's time. I can't right. wait to see time. it. But it's, it is a long process and, you know, every iteration gives you another layer of the story and right. helps you go deeper. So right. it's, it's been important, but. I bet you just absolutely can't wait to hear it like with the instruments, with, with the you instruments, know. with the dancing, with the costumes, with the set. I mean, just everything. Maybe we could talk a little bit about a song that's been cut or like material that you had worked on and then decided, hey, actually, this isn't going to make the next iteration. Uh, a lot of times it's not because the song has been it's bad. It's just like it doesn't serve the story we're telling now. I I don't know if I I only sent you one cut song and I'm not sure I want you to play it. <laughs> I want you to play it. Victoria wants you to play it. I Yeah. Do, would you like to tell the story, Victoria? Yes, because, okay, so we wanted to incorporate some of the actual repertoire that Marion sang in this song, Im Wunderschönen Monat Mai, is an important song. And we used it in the show initially to, um, we had her come upon someone singing it in one of the earlier versions of the show, and she fell in love with the sound. And then she saw Roland Hayes, who was an African-American performing artist, touring opera singer, well-renowned, um, and was successful at it. She saw him perform. Did she see him perform this particular song? We just guessed because it was probably well it was in both of their repertoires yeah. i believe okay yeah. so i cross-referenced that but she probably didn't sing it in church yeah probably not but anyway <laughs> Whatever. we made that up so in our story <laughs> she sees him sing the song and she adds a secondary melody to go along with it so it becomes this sort of duet around the um around the song so you can hear i think we should play it Chelsea, because you'll hear chessie sing this okay, counter melody so the caveat is this is like a recording from the living room when we wrote it. And I it love didn't, it. Yep. It didn't make it to the demo phase um, okay. because the story shifted. Mm -hmm. um, but it does show the intent. So it has me, it does have me singing at the beginning and a little Victoria in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then and a wonderful, a wonderful tenor. We used a recording of him uh, that he recorded for Marion. Um, wow! And okay. so the Edmund Rodriguez, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, fantastic! Fabulous. This is so exciting. Okay, so I'm gonna pull that up real fast. <laughs> and thank you for being willing, because I think it, it's so cool to show kind of the perspective, yeah. you know, um, and to to hear this thing change and and develop, and the and the process is really fascinating. So thanks for being willing to share the process. What is this music? It's 
humming in my bones It feels like coming home You can sing it, why not me? Heart has never felt so free. My soul is waking. A sound is so breathtaking. I hear the voice of God. This is my song. This is. My voice was made for this There's no price I would not pay to sing Oh God, I'll give anything Just let me sing this song It got cut. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I, you do love, you, you do love Shaliba. I know, I know. I mean, well, also those words, I, re- mm. I personally, as a pianist, feel that that same way about playing the piano. And and when I, you know, kind of walked away from that career, it, it really felt like I was cutting out part of my heart. Yeah. And to hear her articulate those words for for singing, that is really, really powerful. Yeah. So kind of walk us through the process. Why did that end up in the end not serving the the musical? Where it falls in the story um, is what's called the want song. So the, the main character pretty early on expresses what they desire and um, all of their choices and actions, you know, trying to achieve that desire, lead, lead them into, I don't know, victory or trouble or, you know, ca- cause, precipitate all of the other action in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I love it, uh, it's quite slow <laughs> and it's not a good like engine rev <laughs> into right. the stories like, huh? Yeah. The energy is not there. Well, part of why I was super excited about it, right. Is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are the leader nerd expert. <laughs> um, you know, the poet's beloved marries someone else. <laughs> and for Marion, she was courting a young man named Orpheus Fisher, who was very light-skinned and passed for white when he wanted to, um, and identified as black when he wanted to. And they dated for a long time, but she kept putting him off. Mm-hmm. And finally, he married somebody else while she was really, really focused on training for her first New York debut um, under her first, not her first vocal teacher, but the one who she really credits with giving her the most um, solid foundation training, um, Giuseppe Baghetti. So she finds out about it and is wrecked. I mean, just wrecked by the fact that he married someone else. And I, so I loved the, <laughs> you know, I loved the subtext. <laughs> I was like, and we did have a, originally had a scene where Roland Hayes basically was like, you sang that without feeling. And 
he's like, what is it about? And she's like, falling in love. And he's like, no, you have to understand the whole cycle. And it's about, you know, this poet whose beloved marries someone else. And then she cries and has a breakthrough. But all of that's gone now. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Mm. <laughs> we, we went through four or five iterations mm-hmm. of want songs mm. to get to the current one that we have. <laughs> Got it. Um, but the themes of like feeling like you're at home, feeling like this is where you belong and mm-hmm. this thing inside of you that just has to get out and it it just lives in you and it and it must be expressed in the world. All of that carried through each iteration, but our final iteration I think is probably the most pop of the versions that we've created. It certainly crosses genres. And when we did it in November, the young woman who sang it did a wonderful job of sort of transitioning between musical theater pop sound into opera sound at the end. And it was beautiful. Yeah, it was it was really fantastic. We have a sample of that right now. We do. You okay. do. The the young woman who's singing it in the sample did it live at Feinstein's 54 Below. She covered it in kind of a pop style. So you won't okay. hear the opera um, as it will be heard in the show, but it's okay. she kills it. Actually, <laughs> she she really apart. does. And this one got me too. I was tearing up as I was listening oh. to it um, earlier. Yeah. It's literally every single one of these. I was just sitting here the first time I heard them saying, yes, yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> I love it. For sure. Okay. So we'll listen to that one now. Is that... Close my eyes close and Close my sing. eyes and sing. Okay. Here we go. Close my eyes. kids is this your kid that's our kid (laughs) this is our kid (laughs) when I when I met my husband he was like so Marion's your first child right and I was like yes (laughs) (laughs) oh I can I I understand entirely you know why it the first iteration right why it ended up changing into into what we just heard. It's absolutely incredible. I know we have a few more um, examples that you had sent over. And I just thought, 
out of all of these ones, maybe we could talk about the Billy King, the confrontation with Billy King, because I mm. find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So this song, I Paid My Dues, is the confrontation between Billy King and Marian Anderson. Marian comes back from Europe. She's famous. She's wealthy. And she has a Finnish accompanist that she's been working with for years. Costi is one of the best in the world. And so... It was perfectly made perfect sense that that's who she would be working with. She brought him back to America because, again, they'd been working together. She hadn't worked with Billy for many, many years. Um, Billy confronts her in our show at the dock saying, hey, what's up? You're back. And I, I should have all these gigs. And this song is Marion telling him, I have the Negro dates for you. So Marion actually told him in the letters that she would offer him the shows for African-American audiences and would have Costi for the white audiences. And Billy was very offended by that and confronts her at the dock in our show, telling her that she's wrong, that he paid his dues and that she owes this to him. And so this song is a big fight between them and the way that it was written, because it's one of those moments where it's interpersonal, it's more contemporary. It's, it's actually kind of funky. (laughs) Um, So if you want to play it, Yeah, great. Okay, and is that the second? Let's see. Is it this one? I paid my dues, Marianne. I paid my dues, Billy. Think of what we've been through, Marianne. Oh, I have. What you got to lose, Marianne? It's my tour. It's my right to choose. Put yourself in my shoes, Marianne. Put yourself in my shoes, Billy. You don't even know my music. I can play anything he can. Just give me the music and a few days. A few days. I've got 99 songs in my repertoire you've never played. Should I wait while you get up to speed? Now there's family money on the table and you push me aside and give it to some Swede? He's finished! He's gonna finish your career. I'm looking out for you, Marion. The Negro press is gonna crucify you. They'll say you sold us out. And white folks not gonna take it lying down You boss around the white men all over the south Maybe you forgot you're in America now Might be a star, but you're still a colored gal I never thought you'd stoop so low, Billy Music is colorless It comes from the soul Costi understands that And he's the best accompanist I've ever had What? You just gonna replace me? With a white man? I paid my dues, Marianne. You're way out of line. Think of what we've been through, Marianne. The decision is mine. I paid my dues, Marianne. Lots of, lots of stuff in there. Yeah. Wow. I can understand both angles. As an accompanist playing for singers, there's an intimacy and a trust that you um, develop over time. And so when you have an accompanist that knows who you are, there's, it's priceless because to be, it's like you become a single entity when you're performing at that level. And I can understand her not wanting to have Billy play all of the shows, but also loyalty, understanding the, the racial dynamic behind it, the optics of it in the press, because people, you know, in the press, 
that's one of the things that Billy mentions to her is how will this be seen? You know, that you're out there bossing around a white man on the stage because just as the singer, you're the one in charge. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we actually address all of those hot topics in mm -hmm. the song and it does demonstrate, you know, because Marion could be perceived as being almost pious and the way she lived her life and the way mm -hmm. that she spoke of herself. Right. And this is one of the places we wanted to demonstrate a human flaw. She perhaps wasn't as sensitive mm -hmm. to Billy and the state of race relations at the time and how it would have affected him. Right. I mean, it is a challenging issue, too, because they were friends. It wasn't just that it was a purely professional relationship, right? right, right. They were they were both friends as well. And um, that dynamic is really sticky when you get into the professional field. Like she was now a career singer. You have friends that love music and may perform, but they don't understand what it is when you've put in 10 years of 10 hour days of practice. It's a, you become a different person. It, it changes who you are. So she was a different person when she mm -hmm. came back and she needed an accompanist who understood that and could achieve the level of excellence that she was going to present. And apparently she did not believe Billy had that. And unfortunately, um, they never really repaired that rift in their relationship. Not until years later. Mm. Um, there are a couple letters between them in the 1970s and they seem to have made up. Okay. You know, but that was 30 years later. Right. You know, okay. Yeah. Almost 40 years later. Yeah. It, so there was, they did circle back eventually. Okay. Um, but, you know, it was, I think it was shortly before he died, if I'm yeah. remembering correctly. Yeah. So there's many years where they didn't, they didn't speak. Yeah. So I think we have one more uh, excerpt that we were going to play and that is Good Girl, right? Ah, uh, yes. Good Girl Germany. Yeah. Um. So I, I just want to give a little shout out to Victoria, my genius, Sparkle Sprinkle genius <laughs> co-writer. Um, when I first was thinking about what should the music for this show be, I was like, okay, you have, it's a period piece, kind of. So you have all the music of the time, right? Jazz, blues, you've got all of that that's happening. But then you've got her classical repertoire, and then you've got her repertoire of spirituals. And then you've got sort of a contemporary musical theater idiom because we wanted it to be accessible to people today. So any place where classical music is um, interwoven into the score, a lot of times it's subtle and it's in the accompaniment where Victoria has done a reference to uh, Schumann or she's done a little nod to Debussy or she has done these brilliant, she tucks them in like little, it's like an Easter egg hunt. Um, Easter eggs. I love it. Yay. <laughs> totally. like, find all the Easter eggs. And it's been fun because we've had a couple of classical singers in the cast for the last um, couple of readings. Mm -hmm. And when they hear it, they'll just look over her like, ah, you know, like they just get super <laughs> excited. Like, I heard that. I saw what you did. The idea of being able to create a score that holds all of those pieces and doesn't feel disjointed has been our challenge, you know, and it's been really exciting because Victoria plays in all of these styles. When they get filtered through her body and imagination, they come together in really amazing ways. So we have this theme of Marion needing to be this good girl um, from a very young age. And part of that was trying to explain, like, why does she have this persona? this, uh, you know, dignified, you know, gracious persona. She sort of never breaks form. I mean, 
And some of that I think was probably just her authentic. She was very shy with this huge voice, but very shy. And some of it was the pressure to you know be respectable because that was how we were going to move race relations forward um, at that exact moment in history. That's sort of what was being presented as the way forward. We were like, how did she, but we got to explain this as a human, you know, her as a human. So we have her mother saying from a very young age, like be a good girl, Mary, and like, don't make a fuss, don't make a scene, you know, don't, this is your way forward. And that good girl theme comes through again and again and again. And it has this triplet feeling that sometimes represents Marion's anxiety. Um, and sometimes is actually her sort of like pulling herself up and, and pushing herself mm. forward. Um, so it depends on kind of like whether it's major or minor. And there is this moment in the show. I hope it doesn't get cut. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who can say? But you, you on the Leader Nerd podcast will hear it, whether or not it's in the show eventually. <laughs> There's this moment in the show where she's gone to Germany to perform and she's you know, taken the stage at, at this um, beautiful cathedral and um, a huge Nazi uh, swastika mm. flag unfurls behind her. And I'm going to let Victoria describe the choices she made in the accompaniment while that's happening. And these two soldiers are kind of goose stepping in. Right. So I wanted to... I love Schumann, right? And I've played the David Spoonletanza many times. It's one of my favorites. Um, and there's an angularity to it, to parts of it, um, that I wanted to incorporate. And so I, I have a little theme that you'll hear at the beginning of this composition that gives a little, little, little nod to Schumann. And then immediately it goes into the triplet to evoke the Erlkönig. And there's, there's even an upward um, minor six pattern that happens in the left hand that pretty much makes you envision the Archonique. But then we go on a journey through this anxiety with the with the triplet propelling you forward into it. And then when it reaches the pinnacle of the song, I incorporated one of the most powerful spirituals that I know, Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel, which is just gut-wrenching. And so there's a mashup between Archonique and Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel that I think works brilliantly. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> this um, is my favorite favorite thing that we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it just it's it's an emotional high point in the show, showing Marion's tenacity, but also her fear. And um, I think it's uh, an emotion that any human can relate to, and to see how she copes is is really powerful. And uh, I hope you like it. Courage, Marianne, you made your choice to see. Now you're in the lion's den. Lord, show me your mercy. I'm afraid. Breathe, Marianne. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel, Daniel, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? You have music, give them music. 
Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Oh my gosh, it's so, so brilliant. I, uh, that mashup is it's probably one of my favorite things I've ever heard. Yay! <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely so stunning. I can't thank you enough for sharing all of these um, with us here today on the podcast. I mean, I think at about an hour and 24 minutes, we should probably think about starting to wrap it up. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's just so easy to gab and gab and gab. Um, yeah. Is there any any kind of final final words you would like to speak um, about either the process or about Marion before we finish? Um, I'll say this about the process that for anyone that's interested in creating musicals, find yourself a great team because it has been one of the joys of my life to collaborate with Chelsea and the other women on this team and to discover Marion's voice through our show and discover who she is and also discover who we are as creators and to make something impactful and beautiful. Oh, it really is um, collaborative magic um, when the two of us get to be in a room together. I mean, clearly the evidence is, you know, what, <laughs> what you've already shared and it's just going to get better from here, right? You know, we, so we had amazing singers um, as part of our 29 hour readings this year. One of them uh, was Emily Kuwachu, who is the first black Christine Daae in Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. She's absolutely stunning. Um, and the other one was Jasmine Mohammed, who is just this absolutely gorgeous opera singer who sings at the Met. She's exquisite. And yeah, she's exquisite. Yeah, they're they're both and they're so different and so talented. Um, and the first time uh, I got to hear Jasmine sing this song that did my Lord deliver Daniel, I just lost my mind because <laughs> with all of her power and, and um, breath and just oh, all the things that she could do with her voice. I'm like, this is probably as close as I can get to, to Mary and to, you know, yeah. hearing and, and touching and seeing her, which is such a gift. Um, do you want to know anything else about her life? I feel like, did I give you enough? I yeah, feel like no, I we absolutely did. As sad as it is to distill, I mean, the thing no, is, no, like, you gotta do it. <laughs> to distill I this know. down into like an actually <laughs> consumable podcast. Um, and we have that problem as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we do. Sure, you do. Yes, I think all the time in my filmmaking and in my um, podcast editing that. A lot of times, truly, less is more. Yes. Um, but sometimes it hurts so so much to cut the good stuff. Oh, it does. Yeah, and it's it is a like what is in service of the story that we're telling now. Right, right. You know, and how can we be servants of the work? Because honestly, there are some great songs that are on the cutting room floor. And yeah. if this was in service of our egos, I would keep fighting for them. Right. right. You know. I'm like, listen to how brilliant we are. I mean, <laughs> right. Listen to this amazing thing we did. Like, we got no. wonderful feedback from somebody yeah. who um, really knows what he's talking about, who said we have an abundance of riches with the songs. But we got to cut. You got to cut. Yeah. yeah. Uh, too bad Wagner didn't, you know, listen to some of that <laughs> advice. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Chelsea Marie Davis and Victoria Theodore. Where can we find you guys on the socials? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram at CMD, like Chelsea Marie Davis mm-hmm. underscore sings. And I'm at Victoria Theodore Music on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok and Twitter. And you can find us both on Patreon, actually. That's Ooh, right. Fantastic. We're both on Patreon. Ooh, yeah. love it. <laughs> um, well, thank you again so much for joining us today. And we, the listeners of Follow the Leader, will be very excited to follow along with your journey with Marion. Thank you so much for having us, Mandy. This has been so fun. Bye. Bye. Tschüss. <laughs> Wasn't that so much fun? (laughs) I can't thank Chelsea and Victoria enough for their generosity with their time and their music. I really can't wait to hear Marion in full production one day. So I'll keep you all updated on how Marion the musical continues to develop. But I gotta say, kids, I expect all you leader stands out there to turn up for this production. Dead serious, I better see you all out there in the audience. Now, listen, kids, I've done an absolutely abysmal job distilling Marion's life down into an hour and 15 minute podcast. It just can't be done. There's so much more there. We've barely scratched the surface, which is why I'm including loads of links in the show notes to videos of Marion, recordings of her singing, links to different documentaries that have been made, as well as a link to the website for the Marion musical. If you've had your curiosity piqued about this incredible leader singer, then there's some good stuff there you're definitely going to want to check out. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It is truly the best way you can support the podcast. Follow the Leader is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. See you later, nerds! If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.